You all have basically dropped the F-bomb on the United States Supreme Court. Yep, they did. That and more on today's broadcast. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Out in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another uh, thrilling edition of the Bradcast. I hope everyone is staying cool out there. We're beginning to get some pretty crushing climate change intensified heat out here in Southern California. We are hardly alone, of course. A triple-digit heat wave that has been simmering in parts of the southwest since the spring is now expected to expand into the central and eastern portions of the nation over the final week of July. Federal forecasters have issued excessive heat warnings and heat advisories for regions all around the United States, including parts of California, Utah, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, Nebraska, the Dakotas, the desert southwest, Texas, and the southern tip of Florida as the uh, summer heat spreads all across the U.S. uh, for uh, parts of the Great Basin, the southwest, the Intermountain West, the Great Plains, southern Florida, with more expected across the country later this week, including up Desi Doyen, our friends in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in the uh, Twin Cities, they could see temperatures in the upper 90s to near 100 degrees, which is kind of insane for that area where many in the Midwest, including my family in Missouri, which I'm also going to talk about in a minute. Uh, where where they go to escape that kind of heat. Yeah, not so much these days. Um, the heat is definitely on, and it's a good time to remind everybody. It's a good time to think through your heat adapta- adaptation strategies and to check mm-hmm. in on vulnerable neighbors mm-hmm. and make sure kids and the elderly and pets are well taken care of and even leave some water out for wildlife if you can. 
Well said. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Uh, so, yeah, do stay safe out there. And by the way, uh, when the heat comes out, so do the climate deniers. Boy, howdy oh my is God, my yes. uh, Twitter feed. I'm sorry, my X feed now. Uh, just just crawling with climate deniers. Uh, hashtag climate scam. <laughs> They'll do anything, anything they can to deny that this is actually happening. Stay safe out there, folks. Uh, more no doubt on tomorrow's Green News Report on our next thrilling broadcast. <laughs> but I, I spent a bit of time on Thursday's show, I think it was, explaining my position as we head into the 2024 presidential election year, essentially describing what I see as a rather straightforward battle Shaping up between pro-democracy and anti-democracy forces. Very simple. Pro-democracy advocates uh, versus pro-authoritarians. And that in such a head-to-head matchup, uh, well, in, in, in such a case as that, I would choose the pro-democracy candidate any and every time. It's not a partisan matter. It's a common sense matter. It's a pro-democracy matter. Now, as it turns out, uh, capital D Democratic candidates at this point also tend to be the small D Democrats for the most part, while the bulk of the Republican Party, sadly, has been usurped by those who favor autocracy, including by their current 2024 pres- uh, presidential frontrunner, Donald Trump. Former staffers of whom have created a terrifying new agenda that they are calling Project 2025. That would consolidate any and all executive branch power directly into the Oval Office, including uh, direct control by the president of theoretically or traditionally independent executive branch agencies like the Department of Justice, like the Federal Reserve, like the Federal Trade Commission, etc., And while, as the New York Times reported last week, this scheme is being drafted by former Trump White House staffers in in conjunction with the far-right Heritage Foundation, it is, in fact, this scheme meant to be a roadmap not just for a potential Donald Trump return to the White House, but for whichever, whoever the next Republican is to win the White House. And moreover, this is not a conspiracy theory or a uh, prediction by some on the left. The folks who are running this Project 2025 scheme are actually quite open about what they are doing. That, too, is on purpose, they say, so that if and when the next Republican takes office, they can simply refer to uh, them having a mandate for this plan. They openly ran on it. We've been talking about it. So now that they're in the White House, of course, they're going to do it. This is no joke. They're talking about uh, allowing the next president to fire tens and thousands of career public civil servants for being not loyal enough to the next president. This is not a drill. We are, in fact, seeing a very real battle between the forces of autocracy and democracy in this country uh, at this time. And yes, around the world where you have an autocratic country like Russia invading their sovereign democratic neighbor, Ukraine. You see the same thing going on in Israel today. Uh, where, you know, the autocrats are, uh, you know, taking over the, uh, the the court system and the people are 
rising up against it. It's playing out here as well in the U.S., the same battle between autocracy and democracy. And where it's playing out here in the U.S., it actually makes, for me anyway, upcoming elections much easier, at least for small-D Democrats like myself. I support the pro-democracy candidate over the pro-autocracy candidate any time. Where there are more than one candidate, uh, candidate who, who supports democracy, well, that's a different story. And I'm more than happy to further examine the, uh, the records, the candidate records, to decide who to support in that case. But in a general election... Uh, for most of the cases, my personal decisions about who to vote for are likely going to be very simple ones. If there are pro-democracy Republicans out there, great. I'm glad to examine the rest of their record as well. But the trouble is there are now vanishing few such Republicans in that party, as far as I can tell, at both the federal and state level. Autocrats from the Republican Party are now attempting to expand and exercise extraordinary control in defiance of voters, in defiance of the rule of law, even in defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court. As corrupt and, yes, far right as the U.S. Supreme Court now is. We will get to defiance of uh, the Supreme Court in a moment with a guest. A former governor will be joining me in a little bit here today. But just by way of a few recent examples of what I'm uh, talking about at the state level, Missouri's that's my old home state. Missouri's battle, uh, a ballot initiative to legalize abortion will now finally be allowed to move forward after the state Supreme Court there ruled that the state's Republican attorney general was improperly, purposefully, unlawfully, unconstitutionally stonewalling this effort. The court ruled unanimously late last week that the Show Me State's Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, was using, quote, misleading and, quote, incorrect arguments to justify delaying his approval of cost estimates for the ballot measure that would, if it makes it onto the 2024 ballot, allow residents to vote on whether to legalize abortion in the state. The AG's approval of the cost estimates, that's a crucial step in the certification process necessary to place a constitutional measure onto the state ballot next year. The state's high court found that the delay by the attorney general stretched far beyond the normal time that the state allows for reviewing and approving ballot initiatives, meaning supporters were unable to get started collecting signatures to try to place the measure on the ballot for next year's elections while they were waiting for the attorney general to certify those cost estimates. The court the high court in Missouri acknowledged the harm to uh, to the plaintiff, a woman by the name of Anna Fitzjames, and the initiative process, which should have taken approximately 54 days. That, according to the ACLU of Missouri, who's representing the plaintiff, instead, instead of 54 days, it has so far taken at least 135 days to get this approval from the AG. Well, I'm no math whiz, but I think that that's a lot longer than the 50 days it's supposed to take. You think? That, of course, uh, the ACLU argued, is no accident. Bailey is uh, simply trying to abuse the powers of his office to undermine the process and the wishes of the voters. 
As the Supreme Court judges wrote, quote, until the official ballot title is certified, a critical step being uh, held up solely by the attorney general's unjustified refusal to act, the plaintiff cannot challenge that title in circuit court or circulate her petitions. Fitzjames's constitutional right of initiative petition is being obstructed and the deadline for submitting signed petitions draws nearer every day. Of course, that's the point. In a statement, the ACLU of Missouri applauded the uh, decision, saying, quote, while today is a tremendous victory for Missourians and the right to direct democracy, it is clear that some who hold office will not hesitate to trample the Constitution if it advances their personal interests and political beliefs. This dispute, in fact, dates back to March uh, of this year when, as part of the procedure to qualify a ballot initiative, the state auditor's office conducted a cost estimate for the measure. The state auditor, Scott Fitzpatrick, found that the proposal would have no known impact on state funds other than a tiny estimated cost of about $51,000 in annual reduced local tax revenues. $51,000 is what it would cost the state, according to the state auditor. But the attorney general, Bailey, rejected the estimates from the state auditor refused to approve them. Instead, estimating on his own, the measure's impact would be, quote, drastic for some reason and could end up costing taxpayers upward of $12 billion. From 50000 to $12 billion? Billion. That's right. <laughs> Because of, uh, he claims, the loss of Medicaid funding or something. So, yeah, $12 billion is quite different from $51,000, is not it? The, uh, the court ruled that the attorney general has the authority only to review the legal content and form of the auditor's report, not the substance of it. Nothing in state law, quote, gives the AG authority to question the auditor's assessment of the fiscal impact of a proposed petition. That's what the court ruled. The initiative, the proposed ballot initiative, would enshrine the rights in the state's constitution in Missouri to make decisions about abortion, birth control, another freedom that America's authoritarians are now gunning for, by the way, childbirth and other issues related to pregnancy. The state, uh, the authoritarian Republicans in the state, like the attorney general, are trying to undermine those efforts however they can. Never mind whether they have to violate the law or the state constitution to do it. They don't care. Ballot measures like this one in Missouri to protect reproductive freedoms for the people or in Missouri to restore them have actually been very successful in other so-called red states, including neighboring Kansas last year, following the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of the 50 years of constitutional freedoms that were previously guaranteed by Roe v. Wade. So as a result, state officials in a number of GOP-controlled states, like Missouri, have been working very hard to make sure that the ballot initiative process is as difficult as possible, if not ban it completely. God forbid Republicans who claim to support freedom. That's what they pretend to support. God forbid that they would allow freedom to, you know, for the voters to prevent big government coming between doctors and their patients. Or even worse, 
allowing voters to make such decisions about their own personal freedoms. Could you imagine such a thing? Voters having a say? In Ohio, Republicans are attempting similar efforts to undermine their own constituents, the freedoms of their own constituents, after the GOP recently outlawed special elections in the state in August, arguing that they tended to be expensive, low turnout affairs. That's what the state secretary of state uh, was arguing, made the case at the time when they decided to outlaw August elections. Well, just months later... Turns out Republicans had a complete about face for some reason. They decided to call a special election in August, just after they had banned most special elections in August. And that election is two weeks from now on August 8 in Ohio for a constitutional ballot measure that would make all other constitutional ballot measures more difficult for voters to approve. If next month's constitutional amendment is approved by voters in the Buckeye state, it will then require 60 percent approval rather than 50 percent approval by voters to adopt a constitutional measure via a ballot initiative. You'll be shocked to learn that uh, the August special election ballot measure to change the adoption threshold to 60 percent as advocated, by the way, by the very same Ohio Secretary of State who had led the charge against any and all August special elections. You'll be shocked to learn that the measure on the ballot in two weeks with early voting underway right now will itself only need to be approved by 50 percent of the voters. All of that The state Republicans duplicitous about face on August elections and its attempt to raise raise the uh, the threshold for adoption of ballot measures that comes in hopes of changing the rules of the game before a November ballot initiative this year in Ohio that would codify abortion rights into the Buckeye state constitution. You see what they're doing here? Mind you, this is also the same state where uh, Republicans on a state U.S. House redistricting panel, including its Republican governor, Mike DeWine, who sat on the panel. This is the state, the same state where that panel simply ignored its own state Supreme Court when they were ordered last year to redraw district maps after they were found to have been unlawful partisan gerrymanders in violation of the Ohio state constitution. But the panel... After the ruling, several rulings from the Ohio State Supreme Court simply ignored the court. They did so repeatedly. The orders by the state high court to draw new maps, and instead they simply used the existing unconstitutional ones because they felt like it in violation of what the high court had told them during last year's uh, November midterms in order to help Republicans gain the narrowest of majorities in the U.S. House. That battle is now uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court, which recently stunned the nation by not overturning the last remaining key provision of the Landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. In doing so, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, ordered the great state of Alabama to add a second black U.S. House majority district to its map before next November's elections. 
It was a stunning ruling. We all thought it was going to the court was going to use the opportunity to just kill the Voting Rights Act. They didn't. Instead, they looked at Alabama's map and they said, no, you guys are cheating. You guys are doing a racial gerrymander, which is unlawful under the Voting Rights Act and the U.S. Constitution. And you must add a second majority black district. But last week, guess what? Republicans in that state great state of Alabama simply decided to defy the U.S. Supreme Court decision and their order. So now what? Well, let's take a break and we will talk about exactly that and a decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court last week to allow the killing of yet another prisoner on Alabama's death row despite a series of botched executions in the state over recent months. The state's former Democratic governor, both small D and capital D, Don Siegelman, joins us next to discuss all of the above after a quick break on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Do they? Do they still? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The uh, three remaining liberal justices on the nation's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court took aim at their Republican-appointed colleagues for allowing the early Friday execution of an Alabama death row inmate who had raised claims about the state's history of botching the state's immoral, grotesque, and inhumane lethal injection process. The court, which has a 6-3 right-wing majority, declined to block the execution of James Barber, who was put to death at about 2 a.m. local time. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, writing uh, in, her, in a dissenting opinion, joined by Justices Kagan and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, wrote, quote, This court's decision denying Barber's request for a stay allows Alabama to experiment again with a human life. Barber had argued that the execution would violate his right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment under the Constitution's Eighth Amendment. His claim was raised in light of the state's problems executing three inmates last year. Two of those executions were ultimately called off when prison officials could not access a suitable vein for the poison. As Sotomayor wrote, uh, where prison officials, quote, spent multiple hours digging for prisoners' veins in an attempt to set IV lines. Another inmate, Joe James, was put to death only after a three-hour delay. As I said, immoral, grotesque, and inhumane. The state subsequently claims to have reviewed its procedures, which was apparently enough to convince the U.S. Supreme Court and the lower courts that the execution could go ahead no problem. 
The uh, Supreme Court's brief order allowing the government to take a man's life did not even bother to explain its reasoning in allowing the execution. Sotomayor wrote in response, quote, Today's decision is another troubling example of the courts stymieing the development of Eighth Amendment law by pushing forward executions without complete information. The justice called out her colleagues in the majority for prioritizing, quote, expeditious executions over reasoned decision making. She noted that the court, I would add a bloodthirsty far right activist court in both the Miller and the Smith cases had overturned. Those are the previous uh, killings or attempted killings last year in both of those cases. The uh, they had over the court had overturned the lower court that had put those executions on hold. And obviously, for good reason. Quote, the court should not allow Alabama to test the efficacy of its internal review by using Barber as its guinea pig. Sotomayor went on, quoting an 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Uh, a dissent that uh, likewise chided the state and the circuit panel's Republican-appointed majority for allowing Barber's execution under these circumstances. If it had not overturned the injunction on those other two cases, Sotomayor, Sotomayor explained, quote, perhaps the state would have been forced to produce evidence in discovery that could explain what kept going wrong last year and avoided inflicting unnecessary pain on these two men. The Supreme Court's corrupted far-right majority generally allows executions to go ahead, with death penalty proponents critical of last-minute court filings saying they're just meant to delay the process. During the oral argument in a 2015 case, conservative justice, well, right-wing justice, extreme justice, Activist Justice Sam Alito referred to uh, those tactics as, quote, a guerrilla war against the death penalty. Friday's ruling serves as a reminder that when it comes to capital punishment, murder by the state, the high court's majority is still eager to expedite executions and reject claims of unconstitutional cruelty out of hand. In other Alabama-related high court matters this week. On Friday, Alabama Republicans in the state legislature and governor's office simply chose to defy a U.S. Supreme Court order entirely by passing a new congressional map that includes only one majority black U.S. House district. The GOP-controlled legislature had, a, had called a special session to redraw an earlier map that they were allowed to use last year after the Supreme Court reaffirmed a lower federal court uh, that had ordered uh, the state to include two House districts where black voters make up the voting age majorities, quote, or something quite close to it, as Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his stunning order in which he and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, of all people, joined with the court's three liberals to essentially save the last remaining portions of the landmark Voting Rights Act by finding that racial gerrymanders are, in fact, still in violation of both federal law and the U.S. Constitution. Despite that very clear ruling from the Supreme Court just over one month ago on Friday, nonetheless, state Republicans approved a new map for the state with just one single majority black 
uh, seat and a second district that is less than just less than 40 percent black. Now, I'm no math whiz, but that seems far less than a majority in that second district to me. The bill passed the GOP state house. Then the GOP state Senate voted in favor of it as well, even though it violated the U.S. Supreme Court and the lower federal court order. Republican Governor Kay Ivey then signed the new redistricting map into law just hours later on Friday night, noting in a statement, quote, the state legislature knows our state, our people and our districts better than the federal courts or activist groups. And I'm pleased that they answered the call and produced new districts ahead of the court deadline. Federal court is now set to hold a hearing on the new map on August 14. Democrats slammed it and its drafters, arguing that the state legislators ignored the court order and that the map continued the state's racist history of voter suppression. Quote, there was never any intent in this building to comply with their court order, said State Rep. Chris England, a Democrat from Tuscaloosa. There was never any intent in this building to comply with the Voting Rights Act, he said. More than a quarter of Alabama's population is black. The state has seven U.S. House seats, but as of now, just one single district in which black voters comprise a majority. They are mostly packed into one single district and or cracked, among others. If state Republicans have their way, it will be that way yet again in next year's 2024 election, despite the Supreme Court order, the U.S. Supreme Court order, which also, by the way, affects a number of other GOP-controlled states who similarly packed and or cracked districts in order to prevent minority candidates from being able to win. Those gerrymanders last year are credited, in fact, with giving Republicans just enough seats in the U.S. House to have won their razor-thin majority in last year's midterms. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reported, uh, reportedly uh, reached out to state GOP legislators in Alabama last week to let them know that he was concerned about maintaining his majority. McCarthy confirmed, in fact, to NBC News that he talked to, quote, a few Alabama legislators. Quote, this is exactly why the Voting Rights Act was first created. This sort of stubbornness of states, said Duell Ross, an attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who successfully, or so he thought, argued the Allen v. Milligan case out, uh, out of Alabama before the Supreme Court. Quote, even when a court says that they are violating federal law or the Constitution, they continue to fail to do the right thing. He said it's troubling, but it's part of a troubling history that has existed in America and Alabama for a long time. The plaintiff in that U.S. Supreme Court case, the successful plaintiff, Evan Milligan, uh, he tied both of the Supreme Court rulings last week on the death penalty and the actions by the Alabama legislature. He tied them together in remarks of his own over the weekend. This past Thursday, our government executed a man. That case was litigated to, to the last hour. And when the Supreme Court gave its ruling where they actually allowed the state of Alabama to carry out the execution, the state complied and executed the gentleman. In this instance, they get a word from the court that they don't want to agree with and then uh, are you know, being disobedient. This is not a time where states 
can play on issues about voting rights. I hope that we would lean into our traditions of being brave and actually complying with uh, the Constitution of the United States. Well, I would hope so, too. But I wouldn't count on it. In early June, Alabama's former Democratic governor, Don Siegelman, who was governor from 1999 to 2003, uh, and the state's former Republican governor, Robert Bentley, who served from 2011 to 2017, both of them together, death penalty proponents during their terms in office as governor, both of them together penned an op-ed in Washington Post, calling for an end to the barbaric practice, saying that they both now regret having signed off on executions in the state during their time in office. As they wrote in June, quote, we have come over time to see the flaws in our nation's justice system and to view the state's death penalty laws in particular as legally and morally troubling. We both presided over executions while in office. But if we had known then what we now know about prosecutorial misconduct, we would have exercised our constitutional authority to commute death sentences to life. We spoke to Governor Siegelman, the only person in Alabama's history, by the way, to have served in all four of the state's top statewide elected offices, from Secretary of State to Attorney General to Lieutenant Governor and Governor. We spoke with him at the time that he and Bentley issued their op-ed, and it seems time to talk to him again. Don Siegelman joins us again today to discuss both that matter and Alabama State Republicans' stunning decision to essentially... Give the middle finger to the U.S. Supreme Court on vote on the Voting Rights Act and racial gerrymandering. Governor Siegelman, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, I'm glad to be back. I've been enjoying your show all afternoon. So, <laughs> Thank you. Um, almost, almost regret that I have to interrupt your your uh, soliloquy because you've been doing so well. Well. Um, I could use I could use a break. Well, let's start with the death penalty, Governor, uh, and the ruling at the U.S. Supreme Court, which apparently state officials have, you know, they had no trouble following that order from the court. Your reaction to what happened in your state and at the Supreme Court leading up to the killing last Friday of James Barber? Well, it's it's tragic, but the the worst part, Brad, is that. We have 167 people on Alabama's death row. 115 of those people are sentenced to death uh, in growing out of an 1870 Jim Crow law that um, took Alabama from uh, a state that required a unanimous jury to execute people to one now that allows someone to be sentenced to death on a jury recommendation that is non-unanimous. Alabama, to my knowledge, Alabama is the only state in the country that is continuing this uh, practice of allowing people to be uh, sentenced to death on a non-unanimous jury recommendation of death. Mm -hmm. We have um, also the distinction of having 31 people on Alabama's death row um, who were not not sentenced to death by our jury, but sentenced to death by a judge who overrode the jury. Wow. The jury, rec- the jury recommended life in prison uh, without parole, and the judge said, no, I think I'm going to go ahead and kill you anyway. So, but, so that's you know, essentially one person deciding who lives and who dies. 
Yeah, well, yeah. Most most people think that one person, well, that that entity should be God and not not a man. Right? Yeah, not a but, judge. Um, yeah, but uh, you know the other tragedy is that uh, from, from since nineteen seventy six nationwide, out of every eight point three people executed, at least one has been exonerated, which means that nationwide we've been getting it wrong about twelve percent of the time. Mm. The people the people exonerated from death row, eighty uh, percent of those are exonerated because of police or prosecutorial misconduct, where prosecutors present false testimony, uh, false evidence, or withhold exculpatory evidence uh, to get a conviction, and Shamefully, about 87% of those people exonerated were were black people, mm -hmm. which means that prosecutors were using false evidence, false testimony, withholding exculpatory evidence to yep. target black people for murders they did not commit. Yep. Um, I guess that doesn't surprise many people, but it's something that that uh, I've been fighting against. And, and uh, the, the one key, and the one thing I want to make clear yeah. before this interview is over, the way we fix our justice system is to repeal the immunity that has been given to prosecutors, mm. both by the United States Supreme Court and by Congress. They have got to be held responsible mm -hmm. when they knowing, knowingly and willfully present false evidence or false testimony or withhold exculpatory evidence yeah. to get a conviction. Now, <clears throat> to show you, again, how cavalierly Americans have accepted this notion that prosecutors can do no wrong, you can't hold them accountable, even in the, uh, the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. On January the, January the 4th, 2010, the Los Angeles Times reported David Savage, legal correspondents, said that uh, yesterday in the Supreme Court, this is on January the 5th, that uh, Elena Kagan sent her deputy in to argue to the United States Supreme Court that U.S. citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. Mm -hmm. U.S. U.S. citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. Mm -hmm. Well, the sad the sad part about that is that because of the Supreme Court decision in 1976, given uh, prosecutors uh, absolute immunity from from civil liability, she's right. Yeah. But you know we've got to we've got to if we want to end wrongful prosecutions, if we want to end mass incarcerations, if we want if we want to end the abuse of power by police, prosecutors, um, and I would say made by presidents, we've got to repeal the immunity that has been given yep. to prosecutors. I uh, I concur. Uh Governor Siegelman, I want to get to the uh some of these gerrymandering questions, but we you know we spoke with you uh, just after your op-ed with Republican Governor uh, Bentley uh, calling for an end to the uh, to the process in Alabama for most of the state, well, most of the state's 167 people on death row, uh, which is the number you just used. Now, I guess that number is 166. Uh, instead, you know, seeking to have their their sentences commuted to life in prison. In that uh, month or so since you wrote that article, have you yet heard from anyone like 
governor, sitting current Governor Kay Ivey or any other Republicans in the state who might finally be coming around on this shameful issue? Are we moving the ball forward in any way? <laughs> There's a silence on this. End. Um, I have <clears throat> I have I have spent some time talking to Republicans independently. And I do think that there is a possibility that we can see some legislative action in the next regular session um, to at least get the 31 people who were sentenced by way of judicial override mm-hmm. to get those people off death row. Um, so, you know, it's, we're, you know we're, I think we're. We're making some inroads, but, you know, only time will tell. But right now, uh, the process, the criminal justice system is is stacked against all of us Mm. as long as prosecutors can abuse their authority, uh, abuse their power with impunity. So we've got to repeal the immunity that is granted in the Federal Tort Claims Act Mm -hmm. um, and began holding prosecutors accountable for intentionally, willfully and intentionally Mm -hmm. targeting, wrongfully targeting people for crimes they did not commit. Uh, Governor Siegelman, in the uh, in the other, in in some ways, almost more shocking matter, uh, frankly, of state lawmakers and, and Governor Ivey in Alabama simply choosing to defy the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, I've argued we're now heading into a state of authoritarianism and that democracy versus autocracy will very much be on the ballot next year. Uh, if, if you were listening in uh, throughout the hour, you probably have some sense of this. But this seems to me to be a good example of what I've been talking about, where GOP officials are now in open defiance of the rule of law, of the Constitution, and even in this case, of the Right-wing Supreme Court, the GOP supermajority in the state legislature backed a plan that would increase the share of black voters in one of the state's six majority white congressional districts to about 40 percent, that from about 30 percent. But the Supreme Court ordered them to create two black majority districts or, you know, quote, close to it, is the new map that has been presented by uh, lawmakers and signed by the the governor in Alabama. Is this new map even close to it as you see it? No, no, it's 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 clearly a play by the Republicans to hold on to to power. But, you know, Brad, this is this is not anything new in this country. When this country was founded, you know, women couldn't vote, Native Americans couldn't vote, blacks couldn't vote. And after the Civil War, we started, you know, this Jim Crow era where we uh, arrested blacks for anything and put them into prison where they could be leased out to corporations. Then we had the reign of terror of the Ku Klux Klan. And after that, you know, we've come up with all of these schemes, including gerrymandering, voter ID, mm-hmm. poll tax, a literacy test. So does this surprise me? No. You know, this is a constant struggle. You know, this, this, all, of this, all of this boils down to the right to vote, which is our most precious right, because all of our duties and responsibilities, all of our freedoms stem from people 
whom we elect to public office, presidents who appoint members of the U.S. Supreme Court and mm -hmm. federal judges and U.S. attorneys and, and, you know, mayors who fix potholes or presidents who can declare war or peace. Everything that's important in our lives stems from the, and well, I, maybe not everything, but mm -hmm. many things that are important to us, to our families, uh, to our lives in general, stem from those whom we elect to public office. And I'd like, you know, the, Martin Luther King and John Lewis and the other freedom fighters knew that, that we, that, that we were, they were in a struggle for the right to vote because they understood this. Mm -hmm. And yet, Dr. King was assassinated in 1968, and we're still fighting voter suppression, yep. not just in Alabama, but throughout this country. And President, former President Trump is about to go on trial for, um, you know, trying to subvert the will of the people. Mm -hmm. So... This we are in a constant struggle, as you pointed out in the first half hour, between autocracy and democracy. And you know, we have just we, all of us. We're fighting with one hand tied behind our back because we are fighting against those people who don't care about democracy but mm -hmm. care about power. Right. We're fighting, and we've got to we've got to win by turning out votes in extraordinary numbers and getting people elected who will carry out the will of the people. You know, it's it's you say it's not new. And that's true. But it was supposed to end uh, or at least begin to end with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and yes, that, uh, you know, we have been struggling ever since uh, the Voting Rights Act. It has helped, but, it, you know, has certainly not uh, solved all the problems. But, Governor, defying the U.S. Supreme Court in this way, that does seem to me to be something new, is it not? Are you familiar with any similar case where a state has said, OK, thank you very much, uh, SCOTUS, for that uh, ruling. We're going to defy it. You can go to hell. I mean, that seems quite new and quite different and quite a different phase. Am I wrong? Well, no, I don't think you're wrong. And I do think that I, I at least I hope that this three-judge federal panel will will see this as a slow ball coming mm -hmm. over home plate and knock it out of the park. I hope that they uh, we know they've got you know people already drawing a new map and hopefully they will order a new map to be implemented uh, that will send a message to other states, North mm -hmm. Carolina and Texas, Louisiana, and others that are in similar situations to Alabama. But they, I don't. I, it would be tragic if the federal courts allowed the Republicans to get away with this power grab. Uh, yeah, I, I that, and I'm wondering how they prevent it. You know, as they used to say about the Supreme Court. Uh, okay, uh, good luck enforcing your uh, your rulings. You don't have an army or anything else. I mean, how do we enforce these rulings if and when we get to the point where states simply say, and I mentioned, you know, in, in the previous segment, also Ohio is doing something similar where they simply defied their own state Supreme Court when it came to uh, redistricting. It seems like we're seeing that now more and more. You served as Alabama attorney general. Uh, what, what are the remedy, remedies when uh, lawmakers simply defy 
uh, a court order, be it from a state Supreme Court or a federal court, a, the U.S. Supreme Court in this case. Where are we going well, from there? <laughs> well, I, w- I would hope that the uh, that the federal court uh, would uh, take take action if their order is disobeyed, and including um, sending U.S. Marshals to pick up the state attorney general and put him in jail for a little while until he comes to his senses. <laughs> but okay. um, you know, I think that. The federal, yeah, the, and this gets us back to Donald Trump and what he was trying to do and taking over, taking over, not only taking over the country illegally, but consolidating power in this, in this attempt to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to become the, the, uh, a, a, a dictator. Yep. But if you, if that is, if it is not stopped by the court here in Alabama, it could grow into something much more dangerous in, in, uh, as you know time moves on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's a terrifying possibility, and the signs that we're seeing, like I said, it's not just Alabama. We're seeing it in other states as well. You mentioned a number of states where uh, they clearly put in place. Uh, 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 racial gerrymanders that were actually found as such by the courts, but then the U.S. Supreme Court said, "Yeah, well, uh, let's put that on hold. Let's let them go ahead and 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 you know run at least one election with these unlawful maps." That's what they did last year. That's how uh, arguably the Republicans ended up with their uh, with their very thin majority in the U.S. House. But this does seem to me to be something very different. And just to since you know Alabama as well as anyone, just to sort of clear up the idea, you know, there's this notion that, oh, well, it's it's just too difficult to make a fair map uh, somehow in these areas. Tell me about the area in play here in these uh, in these two districts in question. Are these heavily uh, black areas being purposely packed in one case, cracked in the other to simply avoid the black majority districts, or, or are there legitimate geographical concerns uh, that the state lawmakers are dealing with, uh, as some of them are actually claiming? Well, the answer is that Alabama has something called a, a black belt, which mm-hmm. is a, a, a the, the color of the soil, which made the soil rich for cotton, and mm-hmm. uh, that's where most of the uh, the uh, antebellum uh, slavery took place, and and it is a a poor and underserved area even today. It is where a majority of uh, of blacks. Uh, live in, if you add in some of the larger cities like uh, Birmingham mm-hmm. but <clears throat> it clearly two congressional districts can easily be drawn uh, that would give blacks a majority in those in those districts um, this is this is just clearly a play for power by the Republicans mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it should should not be tolerated. So it is possible to create a fair map with a second majority black district that meets all of the requirements for such a map with contiguous areas, etc. Uh, this is simply just a matter of Republicans choosing not to. Is that accurate? Yeah. Oh, yes. That's it. Yeah. The, yeah you know, the, the black voting population is is com- compressed. 
uh, you know, they 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 vote, uh, you know, well over ninety percent for their mm-hmm. candidates, mm-hmm. and um, it is clear that if you had a a if the maps were drawn fairly, if it had been drawn fairly, we would have had two districts where we would have you know two um, black candidates. Mm-hmm. Elected. I mean, that's not to say that you couldn't have some extraordinary white candidate that would come in and would win the support of the black um, majority. But mm-hmm. uh, but clearly there is uh, there is room for two majority black districts in Alabama. Now, by the way, this is not the first time, uh, as I understand it, in uh, recent sort of post voting rights history that the federal government has had to come into Alabama and intercede in in uh, U.S. House districting. A previous legal challenge was in 1992, as I understand it, forced the creation of the what is now the 7th Congressional District as the state's only majority black district. Were you in office at the time? I know you weren't yet governor. Were you in office at the time uh, that the federal government came in last time? And, and what, if anything, can be learned about uh, today's legal battle from that one in uh, 92? Too, Governor. Well, I, I was in I was Secretary of State in 1982. Something I take pride in. I was the mm-hmm. the only statewide official. To, I was the first statewide official in the country to support an extension of the 1982 Voting Rights Act, while Ronald Reagan opposed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not in office in '92. I had run for governor in 1990 and, and lost, and uh, I was sitting out waiting uh, for my opportunity to come back and, and be elected uh, lieutenant governor. But um, yeah, there's a you know we, that was that was the first time that we had been able to elect a a black man or woman to a congressional seat. I'd also like to quickly point out something else. We have nine members of the Alabama Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. The last time we had two blacks on the Supreme Court was when I was governor. Um, I appointed that we had uh, Ralph Cook, a, a, a black lawyer, popular black lawyer, uh, had been elected after he was appointed. And then I appointed uh, a, a very bright, capable lawyer, John England, to the Supreme Court. We had two blacks on the Alabama Supreme Court, and they were defeated by Karl Rove's uh, mm-hmm. political henchmen. Uh, so, but since 1817, unless I've got my facts wrong, we have we have never had a a a black elected to a statewide office mm. unless they had been appointed first. And we've only had uh, Ralph Cook and and. Uh, Wow. And Justice at Justice Adams, only two people have been elected after they were appointed. We have never had a black elected to the Court of Criminal Appeals or the Court of Civil Appeals. There is no reason why we don't apply these same districts that have been drawn by the, you know, allowing for two blacks to be elected mm-hmm. in seven congressional districts. Why we don't apply those same districts to the Supreme Court and the Court of Criminal and Civil Appeals mm. so that we can you know, provide some access to justice for black folks. It just doesn't. This, you know, we're still operating. We're yeah. still operating in a Jim Crow era, in a Jim Crow mentality and in, and so, in some cases, Jim Crow legal 
structure. Yeah, I was going to say there, there, there is a reason that uh, Alabama hasn't done that, and it's for exactly that reason to prevent that from happening. It seems to me, uh, Governor, I, I got to get out. It's always a delight to to speak with you, uh, even in these troubling times. And I got to tell you, this this one really is troubling. We're going to keep our eyes on this. We may have to shout out for more uh, good advice from Don Siegelman uh, before all of this is said and done. I sort of hope we don't. I sort of hope someone does the right thing here because it does feel like a uh, a new level of uh, defiance when we're talking about, you know, defying a direct Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court order. Uh, Don Siegelman, uh, by the way, you should buy his book if you'd like to learn his extraordinary backstory. Uh, it is called Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation. Uh, and I promise you there's a lot there. I believe there's a website for it, stealingourdemocracy.com. Is that still up, Governor? Uh, uh, .org, yes. And, uh, .org, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I would recommend the Audible book rather than the hard copy. But hard okay. copy is great. It's nonfiction. And I did not get sued, so it's all true. There you go. You can also find him uh, on the Twitters, now called X, at Don Siegelman. He is Alabama's former governor and the last Democrat, I always prefer to say the most recent Democrat, to serve in that role. Governor Siegelman, always a delight speaking with you, my friend. Hope to uh, do it again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. You bet. All right. We have got to get out. My thanks to our producer, as always, Desi Doyen, to our board operator today, the great Wendell Handy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks, Twitters, X's and Mastodons, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Unfortunately, it's 1984 again in America. Not the year, the book. George Orwell's classic novel tells of a far-right totalitarian clique that uses newspeak and doublethink to impose their rigid anti-democratic doctrine on society. Their regime held power through mind control. They had a ministry of truth for perverting language and manipulating facts, while their thought police enforced ideological purity and suppressed dissent. Thirty-nine years later, here comes a clique of theocratic extremists in our country, using Orwellian manipulation in its crusade to take control over every woman's personal reproductive rights. Having seized the Supreme Court and practically the entire Republican Party, these present-day autocrats are now demanding that state and national lawmakers enforce the group's ultimate dictate, a total ban on abortions, even in cases of rape and incest. To their amazement, however, the great majority of Americans, even Republicans, think abortion ought to be generally available, with each woman deciding what's best for her. Moreover, the idea of Big Brother imposing a federal ban is massively unpopular. No problem, say today's Orwellian news speakers. We'll just ban the word ban from our PR campaigns. Thus, their harsh abortion ban has magically morphed linguistically into, quote, a pro-life plan. There, feel better? 
The abortion truth twisters are even plotting to ban reporters from using the word, claiming that it will be considered proof of political bias. Sure enough, rather than risk right-wing fury, some scaredy-cat reporters are already caving in, meekly describing bans as, quote, restrictions on procedures. How nice, a kinder, gentler tyranny. This is Jim Hightower saying, to keep up with today's Orwellian thought police, connect with Jessica Valenti's diligent tracking of anti-abortion trickery at jessica.substack.com. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is made possible by you subscribers to Jim Hightower's Lowdown on Substack. Find us at jimhightower.substack.com.